Okay, well, we're going through a series of uh, insights from the Gospels. So turn with me today to Matthew 19. Today we're going to just look at a principle that shows up in the Gospels fairly often, and then we're going to go to the Old Testament to actually get an illustration that I think be a kind of a fresh take on, an, on a familiar story. So let's look at Matthew 19. I want to look at this principle of the first being last and the last being first. So you're very familiar with this in uh, Matthew 19 where there's a rich young ruler that comes and he says, what can I do to uh, have eternal life? And this idea of eternal life in the New Testament among the Jews is, a, is not... Um, immortality in the sense of not dying. It's, it's this entering into the maximum positive experience of life. And Jesus, of course, answers and says, well, obey the commandments. And he said, well, I've done that. So, well, then give everything away to the poor and come follow me. And the guy goes away real sad because he's uh, very wealthy. Then starting at verse 23, then Jesus says to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he kind of ratchets it up. Matter of fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples heard it. They're greatly astonished. And who then can be saved? Saved from what? Well, not entering the kingdom of God. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now again, entering the kingdom here is... We we're used to thinking of just go to heaven, go to hell. That, that's not the way they thought about things. To a Jew, just because they're a father of Ab- I mean, a son of Abraham, they're already elect. They're trying to figure out how to get the maximum benefit in life, how to get righteousness. That's that's their orientation. So Peter answered him, said, "See, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have?" Again, this is about gaining experience of life. So. Peter's, you know, I did this, we did this, so what's in it for us? What are we going to get? Interestingly, he doesn't say eternal life, although I think that's what he's talking about here. Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you'll have followed me, you who have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And I think he's answering Peter in the sense of what Peter and his disciples really wanted. What are they always talking about when they're walking along the road? Who's the greatest? Yeah. Greatest in what? Ministry? No. Kingdom. Yeah. And they're thinking political kingdom. So he said, you are going to get your reward that you're after. You're going to get the fullest experience of life that you're hoping for. But you're going to get it in the regeneration. In the new, in the when when things are all made new, but not just you. Verse twenty nine. Everyone who's left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, wife, children, lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many are, who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So it's not always going to be what you think, because to man, a lot of times, what, what, what's being done doesn't seem like it would be all that big of a deal. 
to the people around watching Jesus and his disciples, maybe many of them thought it was amazing. Many of them thought they were an enormous irritation. Many are first will be last and the last will be first. We see this again in the next chapter. And Jesus is uh, tells a parable. He tells a, par- tells a parable about a temporary labor service. The guys are there waiting to get picked up to go do the day labor. And some guys get picked up at 8 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning. And some guys get picked up at 8. And some guys get picked up at 10. Some guys... Now, all the way to the end of the day, there's still some guys waiting there, and they go out and they work an hour, and at the end of the day, everybody gets paid the same. And the guys who worked all day get ticked off. And they said, hey, we worked all day, and you got this. You gave this guy that worked an hour the same amount. And the master says, did you get what you were bargained for? And why are you mad that I'm being generous to this other guy? Isn't it lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? And then verse 16 of chapter 20. So the last will be first and the first last for many are called but few are chosen. So it's not even the length of time of service or exactly what we think about what would be fair that matters. It's actually God's perspective. What did you invest with what you were given? How faithful were you with with the job that I gave you? First will be last, last will be first. Look at Mark 9. Mark chapter 9. Look over at verse 33. He came to Capernaum. His ministry headquarters. And in the house he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? And as usual, they're talking about who it is the greatest. But they kept silent because they knew that Jesus didn't like that conversation all that much. In verse 35, he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So this last shall be first has a serving aspect. We don't tend to think of servants as the highest uh, as the highest thing. You know, we have servants for great people. We don't think of great people serving except when we talk about public office, when we talk about public servants in an ideal world. So let's look at Luke Chapter 13, let's start in uh, verse 24. And he said to them, chapter 19 of, uh, sorry, 13, Luke 13, 24. He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. He'll answer and say to you, I don't know you. Where are you from? Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drink in your presence. 
And you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I I tell you, I don't know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They'll come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, meaning Gentiles. That's what... what And sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who'll be first and first who'll be last. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow the third day I shall be perfected. So, again, he has this idea of the last will be first. And this is talking about when uh, the regeneration takes place again. Because we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who clearly at this point have already gone on to uh, be with the Lord. And we're talking about a place of honor here. Who's honored in the kingdom? And here we are. We have Gentiles being honored in the kingdom, who clearly among the Jews are last. And here they are being first. So the last will be first. First will be last. The real important, um, real important uh, concept in the New Testament But it's not new to the New Testament. What I want to do today is go to one of the oldest stories we all know and talk about this principle in the context of David and Goliath. Let's just go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I want to to give you a new spin on uh, on this story. We were in Israel recently and we went to the Valley of Elah where this took place. And uh, Dr. Anderson proposed to us a a different way to look at this. And I'm going to propose that today as though it's the correct way, although it's interpretive, so it might might not be. But that will save me from having to say, could be, would. I'm just going to save those words and and present it as though this is the way it is, and maybe it's not. Just look for a minute at 1 Samuel 17 and look at verse 46. And this is David talking to uh, Goliath. And he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. Okay. So what is it that David plans to do in this verse? Tell me what he plans to do. Kill Goliath how? How's he plan? Strike him with what? A rock. Okay, he plans to strike him with a rock. How's he going to cut his head off? Yeah, with his with the Goliath sword. So he's expecting to hit him in the rock, with hitting with the rock, him to fall down and chop his head off. You get that? This word, this Hebrew word for strike, is the word nakah, N-A-K-A-H. Now I want you to look at the interview that Saul has with David back in verse thirty-three. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're a youth, and he's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or bear came and took the lamb out of the flock, I went after it, struck it, nakah, same word, and delivered the lamb from its mouth, and then when it rose up against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it, nakah, killed it. How do you think he got a lion that's running away with a uh, with a lamb in its mouth? I think he ran it with a rock. Yeah. So he's already done this before, see? 
Now, in the ancient world, um, having slingshotters was a common uh, war tactic. If you think about a uh, Major League Baseball player, a pitcher can throw a cork baseball about 100 miles an hour from 60 feet away. Uh, I have a friend whose son played uh, college baseball, and then he was drafted and played like A-League um, professional and then was cut. He was the third baseman. And then he got called by uh, Tampa Bay and said, well, come, come try out for being a pitcher. Now, he's never pitched. The reason they did that is because they had clocked his arm from third base. And uh, he can now throw like 98 miles an hour. He's working his way up and might get to be a relief pitcher. That's really fast. Uh, those guys from center field, about a hundred, about you know, 300 feet away, they can throw the ball and hit the catcher right in the right at home plate, just just with their arm. Well, th- that's nothing new because in the ancient world, uh, these guys were slinged and they could hit like they could hit birds in the air. And Judges 20, it tells us there were 600 men in Benjamin who were left-handed, who could hit. And it says they could could hit a target within a hair's breadth. They were super accurate with their slings. So this is is typical in the ancient world of people who are really good at this slingshot. Except with the sling, you know, a Major League Baseball player turns his arm into a sling. When you actually have an extension on that, you can throw 140 miles an hour. And not with a cork baseball, but with a rock. Okay. Have you ever seen somebody get hit in the head at the, at the plate with a cork baseball and a helmet on? It's really gruesome. It hurts them really bad. What happens if you get hit without a helmet with a rock at 140 miles an hour? So David's already done this. And, and just think about it. He goes out to the valley... And he's, he's, he's hit things on the run. Pro- probably the lion or the bear is not standing still. He may have whistled at it, got it to stop and look at him and popped it. We don't know. But um, he goes out there and there's this nine foot tall guy. How agile are nine foot tall guys usually? Yeah. And he's holding a, he's holding a spear and the, just the tip of the spear weighs 15 pounds. Okay, so what 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 is this giant depending on in order to uh, win his battle? He wants a hand-to-hand. Yeah, hand-to-hand brute force, and and you even hear it. You even hear it when he's when he's talking to David. Because what does he ask David to do? Come here where I can reach you, right? And David's like, mm, no. So so David, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this story, and I want you to think about it in terms of. David, looking, walking up, he's already killed the lion, the bear, you know, whacked him with the stone. He goes up, takes the, you know, the, the kind of lion wakes up and he grabs a rock, whack, 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 kills the lion. He's already done this before. And he's, he goes in and he says, that's a stationary target. It's a big stationary target. That's not a little rabbit. It's a great old big thing. You know, a guy's head's this big around. That's, that's easy pickings. Yeah, he's a passionate young guy, agile, you know. He, he takes five stones, maybe he's missed a couple times, you know. So he, he knows he's got this guy. And Goliath had four brothers, okay. That, that's, that's one of the stories. Uh, most of them end up getting killed by various people as we go through the, 
as we go through the uh, Old Testament. But, you know, he kind of knows he has him. And and, and this is typical of humanity that what we tend to do is accept the paradigm that somebody else gives us. I engage you with battle and you must fight on my terms. And we tend to take that. We tend to accept that. And what David said is, I'll engage you in battle, but I'm not going to fight on your terms. Okay? So, So I want you to just think about that as we go through. And knowing that he that he kind of knows he's got him. Now, before we do that, though, I just want to introduce to you the idea that he's already been overlooked. So the last shall be first. And if you're last, what you tend to be is overlooked. How does it feel to be overlooked? You don't like it very much? Yeah, you know that you did something worthwhile or important and you're overlooked. You know that what you do is really valuable, but it's just overlooked. And I think all of us kind of think that sucks. And all of us have, have uh, experienced that. And really, to a large extent, if you're serving, you absolutely are going to be overlooked. Because <laughs> you know if you serve, then everybody finds out and you get asked ten more times, right? That's just kind of the way it works. Well, look, look at where, where we are with David here. Let's look at chapter 16. So Saul has been anointed king. He's been rejected as being king because he didn't follow the God's commands. Samuel now is, is Saul's enemy because Samuel told him, you're not going to be the king anymore. So chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and go, I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. So we already know what Saul's heart is, right? So he says, well, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. So then you know the story that he has all the rest of his sons other than David come. And then you skip down to verse 10. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord's not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? And he said, There remains the youngest. There he is keeping the sheep. Now we don't know where he was pointing to, but we stood on hills overlooking Bethlehem and the hills around it. And it's pretty pretty prominent hills. You can kind of see the area all around. And it's likely that Jesse's pointing to the, the same spot that the shepherds that got the announcement of Jesus' birth were at. So he's out there in the fields. He said, he's out there. You know, go announce to him. So you see in the scripture the cyclical things that keep going over and over again. So we're going to anoint a shepherd here to see something wonderful. And he says, well, bring him here. And so he gets, he gets anointed. It doesn't say that anybody told any, uh, David what the anointing was for. It just says he anointed him in the middle, midst of his brothers. The next thing we see is there's a spirit that troubles Saul. And David comes and stands before him. Look, it says in verse 21, David came to Saul, stood before him, and he loved him. And he became his armor bearer. So now when, when Saul has this evil spirit... He goes and plays the harp for him. 
Now, why did that happen? Well, because Saul had said to his servants, I needed someone who can play well. Bring him to me. In verse 18, one of the servants said, Hey, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who's skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech and handsome in person. So here's this guy, mighty man of war, and Saul... I mean, uh, Samuel comes to see all his brothers, and this mighty man of war who's already proven himself is where? Out watching the sheep. So this is a guy that's already been underappreciated. Now, how do you, what do you typically do when you're underappreciated and suddenly you are able to prove you shouldn't have been underappreciated? What do people typically do? Yeah, they usually crow like crazy, don't they? And get back. Uh, you can see this a lot of times when some underappreciated team wins a game. We showed the world. Nobody believed in us. Blah, blah, blah. Seattle. Seattle. Okay, very good. So he, he's already there. And look at this. Look at this at the end of 17. Um... As David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, this is 57, Abner took him, brought him before Saul and said, Whose son are you, young man? I'm your servant, Jesse, uh, David, from Jesse the Bethlehemite. So here he is. He's been going and playing and making, uh, making Saul's evil spirit go away. And what appreciation does he have? He doesn't even know who he is. All he knows is that little boy that plays the harp for me. So you see this underappreciation? Okay, so as we go through this, I'm going to read this story, and I want you to think of this underappreciated man of war who doesn't get to go to the battle. He's a man of war, but he doesn't get to go to the battle. And, and when he does get to go to the battle, he hears, you're just a kid. You don't, you're inexperienced. And, I want, and he knows he's got the guy. I mean, this is a big old lumbering target. I'm just going to knock him down and, and cut his head off. You can hear it in his talk. He's very confident, right? But I want you to hear the way he talks as you go through this. That's what I want you to focus on. This underappreciated guy, he knows he can do it. And I want you to hear the way he talks, okay? Now, with that new spin on it, let me just read the story. Let's just start in... Um, 20, 17, 20. So David rose early in the morning. It's about a five-hour walk from Bethlehem to uh, the Valley of Elah, something like that. So early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, took the things, uh, the supplies and stuff, as Jesse had told him, and came to the camp as the army was going out and fight and shout for the battle. So maybe he got there around midday. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, and David left the supplies in the hands of the supply keeper, ran to the army, came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was a champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel, and it shall be who the man who kills him, the king, will enrich with great riches. I'll give him his daughter. We'll give him his daughter and give the father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. I don't know about the daughter, but the tax exemption sounds really awesome, right? Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Now, that's a little bit Richard Sherman. 
right there. Little. Okay? But, but you're going to see him turn in a completely different direction before long. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So now you see, you see him posture this whole thing. Of, Wait a minute. So, yeah, I can take this guy out, but what is he doing? I don't just go around killing people. What is he doing? He's defying the armies of the living God. And the people answered in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger aroused against David and said, Why'd you come down here? Who'd you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. So David knows he's somebody. They've had, they've had rivalries with the brothers before. But David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. These people answered as the first did. He says, David knows he's got the guy. I mean, who, I'm not going to go out there with a weaver's beam and try to hit this guy. I know how this works. It's just, this is just a big line. And, and so Saul sent for him and David said to Saul, Don't let anybody's hearts fail. I'll go fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against him. Fight. You're a youth, and he's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, I've done this before. I went out and uh, kept my sheep, and a lion or bear came, and I went out, struck it, delivered the lamb from its mouth when it rose and against me. I caught it by its beard and killed it. I've killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he's defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, at this point, maybe Saul's saying, eh, you know, if I, if I um, let a kid go out there and he's defeated, you know, we don't really have to say he's our champion. We get a freebie on this one, maybe. Or maybe he's saying, maybe, maybe he goes and asks the guys, can this guy really do this? And he's like, yeah. Man, he's he's like the Benjamite uh, slingers. This guy can hit a hit, this guy can hit a sparrow in full flight. So he says, "Yeah, hey, yeah, this may really work." Doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is Saul says, "Go do it." Puts him in the armor, and David says, "I can't move with this stuff." Get, get, I, I'm, so he goes and gets his stones, and then he and then he approaches the Philistine, and the Philistine sees David. And he disdains him. He's only a youth. Ruddy and good-looking. Ruddy means uh, red, reddish, kind of a Esau-ish. And uh, I guess if you're good-looking, you're not supposed to be a warrior. I don't know. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? Apparently, uh, David has his staff in his hand at this point in time. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come here. Come to me. Okay, come get, let me get within reach of you, and I'll feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now, when someone taunts you like that, aren't you usually uh, inclined to accept the challenge? You get, you, we get taunted into playing someone else's game fairly often, don't we? The world does this all the time. It taunts us into playing its game. David doesn't take it. And David said, uh, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, who you defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and give your head, take your head from you, and I will give your carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. 
that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. So if this premise is correct, and David kind of knows he's got this guy, he could say, I'm a mighty warrior and I'm going to bring you down. Which would be our, ind- our inclination. Why? Why is that our inclination? Pride. pride. Our inclination is pride. Just like the disciples, what were they always saying? I want to be first, right? And David could have said, I am first. And instead he says, the Lord's going to do this. It's actually quite remarkable. We know the Lord's Spirit was upon him, and this is the Spirit of God to serve. And not to serve to elevate ourselves uh, in the eyes of men, but to serve to do God's bidding and let the elevation take place as it might. Well, of course, you know what happens. He kills the Philistine, cuts off his head, and then he gets appreciated for it. What do the women sing? Yeah, the, 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 David has slain tens of thousands. He's actually only slain one, but you know how women exaggerate, right? Saul, what's that? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's immediately thereafter. Because... Uh, he may have killed other Philistines that day. Maybe it was 10,000. We don't know. But, you know, I doubt it. Uh, they're making a point that David did something greater than Saul. Okay, they're making a point. And it's actually the very next chapter, Wally. Uh, and he says, the women came out to meet the cities because after they'd slaughtered the Philistines. And Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens thousands. And Saul was very angry. And from that point on, he eyed David with suspicion. So David gets elevated in the eyes of the women, and the king says, hmm, because you did this, I may want to kill you. In fact, now he plays for the Saul, and now Saul knows who he is. He's not, it's not this kid with the harp anymore. He's that guy that slew the giant, tries to kill him with his javelin a couple of times. So now uh, David knows he's been anointed, Perhaps he knows he's to be king. I think we can presume that. Let's go over to chapter 24. And after this drama unfolds and David has had to actually go into running, he's got a group of men around him. And Saul now comes out to hunt him. Chapter 24. It happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines. It was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, the wilderness of En Gedi is over just by the uh, Jordan Valley. It looks like, uh, it looks like our, our terrain here in West Texas, but without all the lush rain. Uh, kind of a, a Big Bend-looking place. There's a lot of ibex there, the mountain goats. So, and it's very steep, steep uh, valleys and uh, hills, maybe... 500 feet to a thousand maybe 1500 feet tall it's kind of where the the mountains just come down into the valley and you've got these uh i'm yeah into the jordan valley and you've got these crevasses going up in it so um then saul took 3,000 chosen men from israel and went to seek david and his men on the rocks of the wild goats of the ibex so this is where the ibex are climbing up the hills so he came to the sheepfolds by the, by the path. It says road there, but it's really just a path. And if you, if you go there, you'll see these paths everywhere where the sheep run and whatnot. So a sheepfold is where they, they keep the sheep. 
at night to protect them from the wild animals and so forth. And there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. So he went in to, to, to go to the bathroom. It, the actual literal saying is to cover his feet. So he's going in there to relieve himself. And David and his men were in the recesses of the cave. Now, we don't know where this cave is. We went to a, a cave that certainly could have been the place. It was certainly large enough. And in the, if, if this is the proper place, there's actually a stream of water co- that comes in there because the, there's a, an oasis at En Gedi that has a spring flowing to it even to today. And you likely would be in the vicinity of that because there's not any water anywhere else. And they're in the recesses. And you can, I always wondered about these guys talking to each other while Saul's in there. Well, if this is the place, most certainly you wouldn't be able to hear a thing because the running water. Perhaps it is because there's uh, livestock in there uh, buying and whatever too. But whatever it is, the men said to David, they're all back there and they're watching David do, do his business. And they say to him in verse 4, 24, 4, the men say, This is the day the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterwards, David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he's the anointed of the Lord. So not only will, will David not kill the king... As would be conventional wisdom, right? Conventional wisdom is you kill the king. Uh, he he's even feels bad about cutting a, a piece of his robe. Why? It was showing disrespect to who? Yeah, to God. Because God had appointed him. Now, at this point, I think we know David knows what's coming. And he could say, well, look, God wants me to be king. God's put... Saul in my path, I can kill Saul, then I'll be king. It would be perfectly logical, wouldn't it? But instead, David says, I'm going to do things God's way and in God's time. You take these two things and put them together, and I think you have a really good picture of what the attitude that goes with being last. Because he's willing to do something in the, in the army deal. He sees a, an opportunity that other people don't see. He says, this is not hard. I, this is I can knock this guy down. I've done this before. This is this is not that hard. But instead of bringing uh, the uh, glory to himself, he deflects it and says, "This is this is not about me. This is about a much higher principle than that. It's about you defaming our God." And then he comes to a place here where he has the ability to make the circumstances take place that God had already prescribed and he says not this way this is not the way it's done I'm not going to do it not by my hand this has to be done God's way it is and it is it's it really it's especially when we're underappreciated right so here here he's got um, uh, you know, he, he's even married the king's daughter. This is why we know he's not a 12-year-old. I mean, he goes in and does the Goliath thing, and the next thing that happens is he gets one of the, um, uh, Saul's daughters, unless they, they're used to having 12-year-olds marry women. You know, that's not... So he gets one of Saul's daughters. The reason Saul gives him his daughter is because he says, for your dowry, uh, I want a hundred foreskins of uh, Philistines, thinking, 
David will die that way. And David comes back and he provides them. It's like rats. Now I've got a son-in-law that's in my family. That's the right. Then I got. What am I going to do with these? Make a purse out of them? So you know, Saul just gets more and more uh, uh, concerned about this guy, and that's why he ends up, you know, trying to all these plots to kill him. And David realizes, man, he's going to get me at some point, and runs away. Even here, when he goes out and says, "My lord, the king." You're after a flea, a dead dog. I'm nothing. Why are you spending your uh, royal resources chasing me around? See, I could have killed you and I didn't. See, I cut a piece of your robe off. You've been misled. I'm not disloyal. And Saul says, oh, you're my son. I love you, David. And David says, he's not going to stay that way very long. I've got to get out of here. (laughs) Because... He's last, and he's willing to serve, but he's not oblivious to what's going on around him at all. And then finally we see when uh, Saul is killed, the, uh, is it an Ammonite? I think think that's right. Comes and says, uh, hey, here's Saul's uh, uh, kingly stuff. Everybody knows that David's next in line. Even Saul knows David's next in line. Here's, here's the royal stuff that I took. He said, what happened? He said, well, I came up on him and he was, he was um, you know, close to death, asked me to go ahead and finish him off, so I did, and I brought this to you. And David said, kill that guy. He killed the Lord's anointed, and he testified against himself. Now, that's not actually what happened. What happened was uh, Saul fell on his own sword, uh, but... Uh, this Ammonite's thinking he's going to get rewarded from David. Why would he think that? If I, if I kill your rival, you'll reward me. Because that's what everybody does, right? <laughs> but not David. Why? Because David has a servant's heart, and he puts God's first. Now, now no one's shrewder at military stuff than David. We started off that way, right? I, this is not that hard. You've got this big target. I'm going to use... I'm, not, I'm going to use a, a method of warfare he's not expecting. He's a goner. But I'm going to give glory to God. Uh, I could go and take my own spot, but I'm not going to do it because that's not God's way. You testified against yourself, so we're putting you away. And what we're going to do now is mourn for Saul because it's the Lord's anointed that's died. No wonder God called David a man after God's own heart. And because David was willing to put his way and his will after God and do things God's way, with a couple of exceptions, of which he repented, because he was willing to do that, God said, I'm going to elevate you and I'm going to make your house a dynasty for all time. Well, the New Testament tells us exactly the same thing about our stuff. When David's out there, how many times, in order to have the kind of skill that he had with that sling to be able to whack a lion or whatever, how many times do you think he had to practice? How many hours? You know, you, you, could, you could just daydream out there with the sheep, right? He's actually using his time wisely out there. No, there's no telling. You know, they, they say, and uh, Tom, isn't it 11,000 hours? 10,000 hours to be an expert. 
Yeah, yeah. So you're you're talking about massive amounts of time he's out there uh, taking advantage of the time. And, and how does he know that that's going to ever turn into anything? Well, it saved, it's saved a couple of lambs. Who cares about a couple of lambs, really? Hey, come back here with that lamb. But David did. And he's out there writing songs and doing his harp stuff. Okay, How, how does he know what that's going to turn into? He didn't know. And in this particular case, those things happen in this life. But they don't have to. Why? Because the last will be first. So you're underappreciated. No matter who you are, you're underappreciated. You do things for people that they don't really appreciate. Uh, You do things that God knows other people don't know. Can you trust God to fulfill His promise that the last will be first? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you when? Due time. Matt? Um, Yeah, what all this is reminding me of, you know, whenever Jesus first came, um, Israel wasn't ready for Him. He cursed the fig tree because it it wasn't even their season for figs. Um, but there's a prophecy when he returns, they will become head of the nations again and the kingdom will be restored to Israel. But um, in order to bring them to the head, he first had to bring them low. And for the last 2,000 years, you've seen the Jewish people being brought to the last of the nations, being led to the slaughter and the Holocaust and all this. And uh, there's still one more abasing that has to happen, if I understand uh, prophecy right. But uh, And then after all that abasing, uh, where they will be accepted the last, then they will be brought up when he returns. Yeah, that's a great point. Actually, humanity is this way. If you think about it, God, you may go to the Garden of Eden. Who's in charge before the world's made? It's Satan, right? He, Lucifer, he's the head guy. And he's brought, and he, we're put over him. And because of the fall, we're made lower. And all of this whole period of redemption and, and this whole human history is so that we can be restored back to the place where we were expected the last will be first. So these, this, this pattern is, is, it happens in Scripture over and over and over again. Not just, but, okay, but it's for each one of our lives too. Yeah. Okay, any other comments? Oh, Terry wants me to tell you that uh, this, this, this uh, slingshotting thing is such a, uh, so widespread, the Romans had a little tool, like a, like a dentist tool, where the, when, when you got a rock embedded in you, they would actually pluck it so they could extract it because it would embed itself. Because The guide we were with said, I can give you some personal experience about this. I, when I was in the Israeli Defense Forces, I was stationed in Gaza during one of the infantatas. And these Arab kids would come bring their slingshots out and slingshot at us, the rocks. And one day I forgot to wear my helmet. And one grazed me in the head and it would have taken me out. <laughs> and he said he had friends that actually did get whacked and, and knocked down. Because he said, those things are... Those things are... <laughs> even to the day, you don't want to mess around with those slingshotters. Okay. God, thank you for this uh, wonderful uh, story and its application. And I pray that whether we see that we can do something with our own hands or whether we look at something and say, wow, this is impossible, that either way, we, we do things your way.
in your strength and waiting for your reward. That we not uh, take things into our own hands. I also ask, Lord, that Satan not sucker us into playing his game his way. And as we go out onto the battlefield of life, when we get taunted, uh, when we get induced into battle, that we, that we go into battle with the, your weapons, the warfare of the Spirit. And we don't really uh, play the world's way. So we know well, that's a losing battle. But if we do it your way, we know we can't lose, Lord. And I pray that you just give us the ability and encouragement to have the eyes to see that uh, the, the battle belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen.